Riches story, unlike any other you've heard before here on the Scammer Stories podcast. This scam victim grew up in the heart of poverty, like real poverty, way more dire than any homeless family ever experiences here in the U.S. No indoor plumbing, no food, and no family. That little girl finally made her way to the U.S., even made her way up through corporate America as an executive, as a black woman on Wall Street, and then off to off-Broadway with a successful singing and acting career. She was on a mission, and she won. That is until the day she met a man. There's one thing and one thing alone that can derail a successful woman, a charming and handsome scammer. So we're going to hear the bad and the good. Oh, yes, there is actually kind of a happy ending here. She was able to take her scammer to court and get some of the money back. You're going to hear how she did it. But first, we need to start at the beginning. You've got quite the story, your childhood. Tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. your childhood, where you grew up, and how you kind of Mm -hmm. grew up disadvantaged. Yes, so I grew up in where I was born in Jamaica, West Indies. And I spent the first 14 years of my life in Jamaica, and I moved to the States when I was 14 in the mid-70s. However, while I lived in Jamaica, I lived with my grandmother and my step-grandfather. And, you know, we were very poor. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water, if you will. Um, You know, we had an outhouse and we had, you know, we, we weren't, you know, hungry, but we weren't well off, certainly. I want to stop here for a second because you don't hear any anger or resentment about her childhood, even though she grew up so unlike the rest of us. Note it. So, but I I think one of the things for me that really affected me during my childhood was not knowing my mom or my dad and wanting to know them and feeling so isolated and abandoned because, you know, and my mom would visit from time to time, but she would never take me back with her. And so I always interpreted that as a child to not really belonging, not really being wanted, Um, especially when my two sisters came to visit and she came back and took them both back to the States and didn't take me and didn't even say goodbye or even offered an explanation. Yes. So I kind of walked around with this feeling of I don't belong and she didn't really want me. And when I moved to the U.S. to live with her, unfortunately, there was still no real affection. I don't think I've ever hugged her, if you will. She was not that type of person. You should just be happy you have food and shelter and that should be sufficient um, and also the, the other thing that was a factor was the fact that we went to church a lot. We were very religious and I didn't get to do any of the things a teenager would. So I've never been to a prom during my teenage years, never been to the movies, never dated, um, didn't play any sort of sports 
sports, didn't go to a concert or listen to secular music, any of that. So that was all frowned upon because that was, quote unquote, not of God. So even after I married my first husband, I remember asking him, may I watch television? <laughs> because <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was so conditioned to to believe that television was of the devil and watching it, God would not be happy because you can use that time to pray. So I, I kind of went out to this world very naive and certainly very vulnerable. I had, I had no idea what it was like to date, to be in a relationship, what that meant, or, you know, you know, date one person said, well, that worked. Well, that didn't work. That this is what I need. This is what I didn't need. So there were so many different things at play because I really wanted to have love and affection and companionship. These are the things that were all missing in my life. So I think when I moved into my adult life, I literally had to run away from the church to be in a relationship because in the church where I went, you weren't allowed to date on your own or marry on your own, you would have to say, oh, you would have to go to the pastor and say, well, this is someone that I believe God would want me to marry. And then he would go to God and then he would get a message from God. And then he would come back and tell you what God said, yes, or God said, no, that was how cultist it it, it was. You wrote mm-hmm. one book, but you could write five. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Your life has Thank been you. so interesting. <laughs> So you were able to find a husband and then that didn't work out. Right. So the the first husband, I met him in church. I was 19 years old. And I think I was, I think what was more, most appealing to me, well, first of all, I was, someone was showing me attention and love and, and caring for me. And, you know, I went ahead and I married him because that's the only way I knew how to be with someone. I had to marry them. We weren't allowed to date. Even while you, even people who got the okay to marry someone, you still couldn't date them until you were married. My ex-husband tried to hold my hand. I remember snatching it from him as if he burned me. Like, we're not supposed to hold hands. That type of thing. That's that sort of conditioning. So I was so naive. So I, I went and I married him and that didn't work out. He stayed out night after night after night, disappeared for weeks, left me with a brand new baby. And I, I don't know what part of the book you've read. I don't want to give you uh, too much of it. Um, but yeah, that certainly did not work out. At what point in your life were you when the scam started? And when was it? Uh, it was in 2016. Um, after I divorced my uh, second husband, I took eight years to just care for myself. And when I thought I was ready, someone suggested a dating site. I've never been on a dating site, suggested a dating site. And on this dating site, they cater only to individuals over 50. And I thought, well, you know what? These are individuals that should be grounded and, um, you know, mature. I'll give it a shot. So I met a few people, but there's this one guy that I met and I um, agreed to go out with him. So I met him in January of 2016. This scam is a little different from some of the scams you hear on this podcast. I met him in person. He slept beside me for 18 months, but it was all a scam. Oh, he actually met him in person. I, I went out on our first date. Um, we met on the Upper Upper West Side, went to a nice Thai restaurant. Then we went to a lounge. And then after that, we just started seeing each other. I spent every weekend with this man. Okay. Yeah. So I, I spent every weekend with him 
And I, I, I met his, his sister, I met his niece, I met his cousin, I FaceTime with his mom, I FaceTime with, with his son. And then I met, um, he met my nephews and my sister. So, you know, I thought, you know, everything was going fine. And what happened is I was at a, a point where I was looking to buy um, a retirement property. And I live in Manhattan and it's very expensive in Manhattan. And he kept saying, you know, my cousin owns this home in Connecticut. You should definitely take a look at it. It's going to be much more cost effective, et cetera, et cetera. And now by this time he has, um, you know, tattooed my initials in big, huge, bold letters across his chest. We were spending every weekend together, going out, dining, writing, going on cruises and doing all kinds of stuff. So we were having a great time. So I said, hey, Connecticut. Okay. So I went to look at the house and I saw the house and I said, you know, this has some real potential, not just for me to live there when I retire, but also for uh, rental income because it was a three family house. So kind of long story short, I decided to invest in the property. Around that time, however, I was doing a lot of traveling because I'm also an actress. So because he was living with me, practically, um, you know, I turned the money over to him for him to handle the renovations. And whenever we would talk on the phone, because he was, quote unquote, at the property, managing and overseeing the renovations. So whenever he and I would talk, he would say, oh, today we put in uh, the jacuzzi that you wanted. Or today we put in, um, today was sheetrock day. Today was paint day. Today I put in that flower bed you love, that you want, because I know how much you love flowers. I put it right by the front there, blah, blah, blah. And he would give me a play-by-play. He would even go so far as to talk about, you know, today I had an argument with some of the workers because um, they're taking too long on their lunch hour. So it all seems so plausible. But I would say to him, well, I want to see pictures. He said, well, if you would do me this huge favor, I would love for you to see the pictures when it's done. You saw it when it was unfinished. It would mean so much to me if you could see it when it was actually finished. And I said, okay. So when it the time for me to go to actually see the property, he said, you know what? Let's spend the weekend in the finished house. Let's spend the weekend there before tenants move in. He says, let's just pack a picnic basket. The Wi-Fi is working. The plumbing is working. Electricity will be the first ones there. So which I did. I started packing. And I was really looking forward to this weekend. Packed sleeping bags, what have you. The Thursday before I was supposed to go up and see the house and spend the weekend with him, he reached out to me to say that his mother had passed away. His mom was was ill. I know she had an illness. So I, I believe that. And then he just became scarce and scarcer and scarcer and scarcer, would not call me, would not return my calls. And then I hired an attorney who went to look at the property to find out that nothing that he told me was true. Nothing was done to the property. He had just disappeared um, with all that money. And what was so interesting, I had such a hard time believing that that happened. I'm like, well, you know, his mom just passed away. So maybe he's just having some sort of breakdown. Are you sure you went to the right house? And he timed it because he knew I was having foot surgery. I was not mobile. Mm -hmm. He timed it as well. And then I went back on the website and there he was with a different profile with a different name and gone with my money. And what was the length of time from when you met him to that point you said about two years, year and a half? Uh, 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 
year and a half. I met him in January of 2016, and this happened in June, July of 2017. So then, what well, did I you realized do? what he I, I realized what he had done after my attorney sent me pictures of a house that I thought was finished, mm. and it wasn't. And I don't want to kind of ruin this for um, your your readers or your your listeners, but a lot of what he told me was not only about the money, but a lot of what he told me had happened didn't really happen. But I let I let people read that. So, you know, I am not one for confrontation and chaos. And so what I would normally do when I'm wronged, I would say, oh, you know what? Let karma handle it. <laughs> let God handle it. Not this time. I called the FBI. I went to the precinct, filed a report. I called the district attorney's office. I called, I went to the FTC and I filed all these reports. What was frustrating is that that's not criminal. That's exactly. Civil. They told you that you gave your money away, didn't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's, yeah, that's not criminal. I remember, and I quote the police officer, he said, had he broken into your home and stole that money, then we could go after him. But because it was theft by deception, it is only civil. So I did file a lawsuit um, against him and his cousin who happened to be involved in this as well. And he did not show up for court. So I got a default judgment against him and I enforced the judgment. And coincidentally, this in March of this year, you know, because a lot of enforcement companies would reach out to me and say, oh, I see that you won this judgment against this guy. We can take the case and we'll get 30% of whatever you get. And I would say, you know, forget about it. He doesn't have any money. I'm not even going to bother until I decided to do it. And I said, you know what? What's the worst that could happen? They find a few coins or they just make his life miserable. They found him in March of this year and he was living with his actual girlfriend because all during that time while we were together, he had a real girlfriend. He had another life. Even though he spent every weekend with me, he had another life. So I do believe she was in on it. But anyway, they found him in March of this year and they found a bank account with, I don't know, approximately $21,000 and they immediately froze it and the money was diverted to me. And then he then called, because he's a catch-me-if-you-can type of guy. He then called and said to her, well, could you ask her not to take all of it? I will set up a payment plan. Seriously, dude? You set up a payment plan? Let's make it convenient (laughs) for you. For you. You stole $177,000 and you want a $20,000 payment plan. And she said, nope, that's going to happen. And his response was, well, you know, I can just go off the grid. Either way, I feel vindicated because if you buy a house, if you buy a car, if you get a job, whatever it is, with this judgment out against you, they will always be coming for you. Or alternatively, you can go live under a grid or a bridge, whatever you choose to live under. So that is kind of where we are. So this is interesting because I've got a group of women that I speak to who I've interviewed for this Mm -hmm. podcast in California who Mm -hmm. had a similar Mm -hmm. situation, but Mm -hmm. they couldn't get any of the money back because the district attorney there wouldn't file any charges because they said it wasn't a crime. So either law enforcement is different in New York than it is California or the law is different. No, it's this because I filed a lawsuit. This became a civil matter and I got a judgment against him as part of a civil matter. So the dis- when I went to the district attorney, 
he told me the same thing in essence. It's like, yeah, I see that there's something there, but you should file a lawsuit in the court, make it a civil matter. So I want a judgment against him, an automatic judgment, because he did not show up. And so they, I, I was awarded judgment. 9% of interest is building on this money. So that's why, because I won a civil case. But I won by default because he didn't show up. So technically, I won the civil case. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. That's the only way. So how much are you able to get back then? Well, so far, just 28000 But it's still continuing. Still continue. And he cannot own property, cannot buy a house. He cannot go to a job because his wages will be garnished. Yeah, so it will still continue. So whatever he owns or whatever he has, he must put that in somebody else's name. Now, what about the girlfriend? Was she included in the lawsuit? I didn't find out about the girlfriend until during discovery. Okay, because she needs to be held accountable too. Yeah, because if we go to trial, because I won, I won with my ex. The person who we think helped him, who was a lawyer, coincidentally, because it was his house, he is the one that told us during um, deposition about this woman and said, oh, well, I know he gave some of the money to this woman. And I was like, who is this woman? Well, that was really his real girlfriend all along. So if we go to trial, then she's going to come into play. What's the likelihood that you are going to go to trial? I I don't know. There is kind of been radio silent on that side right now. And um, I'm just waiting for the court to give us a date. And I'm going to go to trial. So you want to go to trial. Is that how you feel about it? You want to face him in court? Yeah, because I think that he doesn't. I think that the person who would be sued here um, is a lawyer. And I don't think he wants to get messed up in this. So he may or may not. I mean, he tried to offer me pittance, which I said no. And so depending on what the courts will do, I will probably want to go to, to trial. Okay, so tell us now, looking back now, so what are some of the red flags you missed that others can learn from? Absolutely. I I think one of them was his uh, proclamations of love was just too fast. You know, my instinct told me that it was too quick. Within a month, he told me that, wow, I love you, and I, I could see myself spending my whole life with you. And it was only like three or four weeks, and I remember thinking to myself, well, that's just too soon. You don't know enough about me to know if that's the case. But there was a part of me that was also saying, well, I know of people, you know, met at love at first sight and went on to live happy, meaningful lives and have wonderful relationships. So I think that was one. Um, another was Christmas and Thanksgiving. He did not spend those holidays with me. He said that his mother was dying and that he and his sisters wanted to spend her last holidays with her. And I thought I would be insensitive to say, no, you have to spend spend half the day with your mother and then spend the other half with me or allow me to come to your home and spend, you know. And I just said, you know what, let me just back off. It's just such a sensitive thing. But that was him separating me from his life. And I don't know if you've read the book about what the real story was with his mother. I don't know if she was in it, but, uh, but he told me she died. And he even sent me a picture of somebody in a coffin. Creepy. Yes. The other thing was that I think I should have been more diligent about. um, He wouldn't let me see his apartment. 
because I, I think it's so important to go and see where the other person lives. It tells you a lot about that person. If they have stuff to hide, they won't want you to see their apartment. Now, I have a deathly fear of rats and all things rodent. And he knew that. And he used that. And he said, you know, right now there's some hole in the walls and there are lots of rats running around. You would freak out. I, you know, let's wait until it gets fixed before you come to see my apartment. And I was like, yeah, because I don't want to see any rats. And so I kind of fell back from that. But I should have insisted. Follow your intuition. If something feels off or too good to be true, it probably is. I would say do that. I would say conduct a background check prior to the first date, prior to your feelings coming into play. Because in my situations, I found stuff up about him and I decided to say, no, this is stuff that he did many, many years ago. I am not going to judge him who's perfect among us, that type of thing. And the scammers prey on generosity. So learn the art of stinginess. When you just meet someone, don't don't just start giving them money, even if you're even if you're trying, even if you're trying to, to help them. And be be wary of the sob stories. You know, he was I'm suicidal, or you know, my mother's dying and my son is in a bad situation. These are all things to kind of pull you in to especially because during our first date, he asked so many questions about me. And I interpreted that to mean that he was genuinely interested in me, wanted to know more about me. He was really extracting information that he could later use. He would tell me about some of his traumas, assuming they were real, so that I could tell him about me so that he could use this and kind of customize his approach. So he knew about the rats, so he used that. He knew that, you know, I'm, I, love, I love helping. That's just me. And I'm not going to let him change that. I'm going to be more careful. I'm not going to let him change that. I love help. If I see someone in it, because the way I look at it, I come from such humble beginnings and someone had to help me. And I always want to pay for it. I always want to see if I can change some, someone's situation and help someone change the trajectory of their life, whatever I could do. And he knew that. So he would tell me these sob stories. I'd be like, wow, that's terrible. So how are we going to fix that? Or he sent me a picture of a, his son with a black eye saying that he got into a fight at school because the school is so bad and the neighborhood is so bad. And therefore he wants to, you know, make more money so he could take him out of that. And I'm like, that neighborhood. I'm like, yes, we have to work on that. So he really pulled, just pulled in my emotions, knowing that if I know someone is struggling, it's really hard for me to say, well, you know what? You're a grown man, which is what I would do now. You're a grown man. Go fix it on your own. Godspeed. And how do people react when you tell them you've been scammed? Are they kind? Are they rude? Do you feel like you're victim shamed at all? Not yet. Not yet. And, you know, shortly after this happened, I, I, I felt really ashamed that it happened because I, I'm, an, I'm a corporate executive on Wall Street. I was so ashamed to kind of tell that story. But I started telling it. I started telling it in my Zumba class. I would tell people in the downstairs in the laundry room. I would tell people I meet on while I was commuting to work. And what was so interesting is that I met other women in similar situations. Do you know it, that my situation is not that unique? When you think about, quote, unquote, the traditional scams, you think of someone hiding behind some 
online fraudster hiding behind a screen, you know, and pretending to be someone who they're not. They're just typing on a computer and someone just may never meet this person, but yet send them money. In my case, this is someone that was immersed in my life. And what I found out with telling my story, I met a woman who um, she was retired. She was in her mid 60s. She met someone and she decided to marry him. They got engaged. Turns out he was only grooming her as well, stole all of her money and she had to go back to work at that age. Then I met someone else who was in the, in the entertainment industry, um, married someone or they were either married or getting ready to get married. And he scammed her out of practically all of her money and she had to move into a shelter. Then I met a young lady who was scammed and her boyfriend opened all these credit cards in her name and she went into, into bankruptcy. But I think the common thread through all these stories was the shame. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. I don't want anybody to know about it. And that's when I decided shame is, in my opinion, shame here in this situation is not for me to wear. I'm not wearing your shame because I didn't do anything to be ashamed of. But I haven't. Yeah, you did something. You did this depraved thing. I'm not going to walk around in shame. It happened to me. And I feel if my story could empower, encourage, inspire or someone could read within the pages of my book or see signs that that would help them. So I don't walk around in shame here. I just don't. But no, I haven't had anyone who said, oh my God, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you see that? People typically say, yeah, it'll probably happen to me too. If he was, if I, if it's someone I was living with, if it's someone that I saw rarely or I've never seen at all, then I could see that. So I haven't had that yet. And I'm not, People may have thought it, but no one has actually said yeah. that to me yet. Yeah. Well, and another common thing with these women that I've spoken to with a similar situation like you, they were all professional women. Yes. With yes. careers, had things, yes. they were business owners yes. and they were yes. in the health industry. They were, yes. had a lot going for them. So, yes, I was, I was on, you know, working on Wall Street at the time and, you know, I was a managing director heading up my own team on all of North and Latin America. I am a SAG actress. I'm a singer. I'm performing all over the city. She's been really kind with her time, both in giving me this interview and talking to other survivors I've sent her way. So here's how you can find her. They can find my book is available wherever books are sold. So it's on Target, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Walmart, these little indie shops, Strand Bookstore, it's available wherever books are sold. I have a website. It's Donna, D-O-N-N-A dash Hayes.com. That's my performance website. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, which I don't think I did. Shortly after this happened, I went out and became a certified coach through ICF. Yeah, I saw that online. And I, okay. Yeah. yeah, and I and I, I started an LLC, a coaching practice, and I really start working with women, helping them to kind of shed victimhood. The website is distinguishedcoaching.com. I'll put all the links to contact her, plus how to buy her book and everything else in the show notes. But first, one more thing before we go. You may have noticed that I considered taking down the Facebook page because Scammers are trying to shop on there for more victims, and I was receiving messages from victims that I wasn't deleting them soon enough. So then we figured out that they were actually able to block me, the scammers were, and so I couldn't see them. 
So I went and found new admins and helped them to help me keep an eye on it. And I spoke with other admins on other pages and decided I'd keep the page. It turns out the Scammer Stories podcast page hasn't seen nearly the volume of scammers as other pages like it. So I'm going to hang in there and you hang in there too, Scammer Warriors. Until next time, you can always email me at scammerstoriespodcast at gmail.com.